American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about John Barry, the father of the U.S. Navy. But most people would probably be more familiar with John Paul Jones being called the father of the U.S. Navy. What are some of Barry's qualifications for that title? Well, he was responsible for outfitting for war many of the merchant ships sold to the Continental Navy at the beginning of the American Revolution. He commanded the ships that engaged in the first and the final naval battle of the Revolutionary War, and he was the first commissioned officer and first flag officer of the new United States Navy. So while he wasn't as flashy and dashing and self-promoting as John Paul Jones, he certainly did the work of establishing a naval power. So let's talk about John Barry's early years. How did he come to be such a sailor? Well, John Barry was born in 1745 in County Wexford on the southeastern corner of the island of Ireland. His parents were Catholic tenant farmers on land owned by a wealthy Protestant Englishman. Catholics in Ireland had been oppressed for centuries by the English penal laws, which forbade them owning land or really having any political power. Eventually, his parents were evicted from the land and were forced to move to Rosslare, a coastal town. At 10 years old, John went to work as a cabin boy on his uncle's fishing vessel, and he took to sailing like a fish to water. By 15, he had risen from cabin boy to mate, and shortly thereafter, he left Ireland to seek a better life, leaving his family in Ireland never to return. But he took with him his Catholic faith, his hatred of the English, and his skill as a sailor. Yes, it was 1760 when he came to Philadelphia, one of the most important port cities in the New World, and thus a prime choice for a young sailor looking for fortune. His choice of Philadelphia had another important dimension, however. The anti-Catholicism of the English had come to the New World, too. The Catholic faith was banned up and down down the colonies, even in Maryland, the colony founded by Catholics for Catholics. The only colony that bucked this trend was Pennsylvania. Founded by the Quaker William Penn, Pennsylvania's Charter of Privileges granted religious liberty even to Catholics. This meant that at the time, the two Catholic parishes in Philadelphia were the only parishes in the entire English-speaking world where the Holy Mass could legally be celebrated in public. So John Barry was in a city where his faith and his profession could both flourish. And they did. At just 21 years of age, nine years before the Revolutionary War, John Barry was given his first command. As captain of the schooner Barbados, Barry made nine trips to the West Indies without a single mishap, honing his skill and making a name for himself among the Philadelphia upper class and shipping firms. He married an Irish girl, Mary, and settled into life in burgeoning Philadelphia. He joined the prestigious charitable organization, the Sea Captains Club, which was dedicated to helping the widows and orphans of sailors lost at sea. He certainly cared about his fellow sailors and their families, and that also included while on board ship. Yes, on board ship, John Barry was always considered a strict but fair captain who sincerely cared about his men and was fair to prisoners taken in battle. Every day on board ship would begin with him reading to the crew from the Bible. He was also a very large man for his day, growing to a powerful six feet, four inches tall at a time when most men were well under six feet. Yes, his physical size actually enabled him to personally put down three mutinies over the years. So, after the Barbados came a few shorter term commands of increasing prestige until in 1774, the largest merchant shipping firm in 
Philadelphia, Willing Morris and Cadwallader, tapped Barry to captain and own the 200-ton Black Prince. It was as captain of the Black Prince that Barry actually recorded the fastest day of sailing in the 18th century, covering 237 miles in a 24-hour period on a return voyage from England. But the year 1774 had dark clouds for John Barry, too. Yes, it did. Mary died while John was at sea, leaving John a childless widower at 29 years old. And the situation with England was reaching a boiling point as the Continental Congress convened for the first time in his hometown of Philadelphia. John Barry had no love lost for the English. He remembered being evicted as a youth, and he never forgot the story of 3,000 Wexfordians being slaughtered by the invading forces of Oliver Cromwell. So when the opportunity to fight the English came up... This uh, capable Irish soldier was only too happy to join the cause. Uh, Yes, indeed. Hostilities broke out in 1775. Barry sold the Black Prince to the Continental Congress, which turned it into the warship Alfred. Barry was given command of the first ship of war, Lexington, and was tasked with outfitting for war both Lexington and Alfred, and many other merchant ships purchased to form the Continental Navy. It was aboard the Lexington in April of 1776 that Barry won the first naval victory of the Revolution when they captured the British sloop Edward off the Capes of Virginia. Shortly thereafter, he was brought back to Philadelphia to oversee the construction of a new ship for him to command, the Effingham. But he couldn't let the fighting go on without him just because he didn't have a ship to No, of course not. He carried out a number of daring raids and assaults along the Delaware River and other inland waterways, destroying British ships and supply depots. He even offered his services as a soldier, becoming a Marine under the command of his old boss, John Cadwallader, who had been made a Marine general and who selected Barry to be his aide-de-camp. While a Marine, Barry took part in the Battle of Trenton, and led a defensive effort in the Battle of Princeton. General George Washington took note of his bravery and ability and tapped him to transfer wounded soldiers through British lines, as well as take a dispatch to General Cornwallis under a flag of truce. Right, and it was during this time that Barry was actually offered a bribe to switch loyalties, which he refused. Yes, it's unclear who the bribe came from, but he was offered 15,000 gold guineas or 20,000 British pounds sterling, plus a commission in the Royal Navy, if he would turn over his new ship, the Effingham, to the British. He pointedly refused, saying he spurned the idea of being a traitor. <laughs> After so many years of itching for a fight against the British, there wasn't much chance that he would turn traitor and deliver him a gift like that for a few pieces of gold or silver. Uh, Uh, No. And after the Effingham, Barry had two other commands. In 1778, he took command of the Raleigh, but not too long after leaving port, the Raleigh was spotted by a far superior British force. For 48 hours, he eluded capture until making it to Maine's Penobscot Bay, where he scuttled the ship and evacuated his crew to avoid capture. He would have managed to save his entire crew and blow up the Raleigh, lest it be captured by the British, but a treacherous sailor aboard his ship prevented the escape of one-third of the crew and the firing of the ship. But he did lead 88 sailors to safety in rowboats to Boston Harbor. He really cared for his men and wanted to do everything he could to avoid surrendering them to the enemy. Yes, and then his final command was aboard the 36-gun frigate Alliance, and on it he had two of his most noteworthy battles. First, in May 1781, the Alliance engaged two much smaller British vessels, the sloops Trespassy and Atlanta. The Alliance had the advantage in firepower, but being so much larger, it required more wind to move. So when the winds died down, the Alliance was becalmed, but the smaller vessels were able to maneuver into position to fire on the Alliance while staying out of the Alliance field of fire. The fight was going poorly for the Alliance for hours, and Barry was leading what defense they could muster until a burst of canister severely wounded him and he had to be taken below decks due to loss of blood. As he was being attended to, the ship's colors were shot down. His second-in-command came to ask him if they should surrender. Barry angrily responded, 
No, sir, the thunder. If this ship cannot be fought without me, I will be brought on deck. To your duty, sir. Shortly after the colors were reflown, a gust of wind allowed the alliance to come about quickly and bring all 14 12-pound cannons on the starboard side to bear on the fight. Two volleys later, the British vessels struck their own colors and surrendered. When the British commander came on board and presented his sword, Barry gave it back to him, saying, I return it to you, sir. You have merited it, and your king ought to give you a better ship. So, not only caring for his own men, but extremely magnanimous in victory as well. Yes, indeed. And in March of 1783, Barry commanded the Alliance in the final naval engagement of the Revolution. The Alliance was escorting a ship carrying 72,000 Spanish silver dollars from Havana to support the American Revolution. Off Cape Canaveral, Florida, the British frigate Sybil approached and the Alliance engaged her to protect the precious cargo. After 45 minutes, the gun crews of the Alliance had wrecked the Sybil badly enough that she fled, and thus ended the naval components of the American Revolution. But not Barry's life at sea. Not by a long shot. Barry returned to merchant sailing and made a number of successful trips to East Asia. He had remarried in 1777 to Sarah Austin. They had no children of their own, but they raised the two sons of his sister and brother-in-law who both died in the 1780s. In 1794, when the need for a standing naval force became apparent to the new United States of America, President George Washington nominated Barry to be the first commissioned officer of the new United States Navy, and he was confirmed by the Senate. He was made a captain, but given the title of Commodore, making him the first flag officer of the United States Navy. He oversaw the construction of his new command, the frigate United States, and was at its helm when it floated in May of 1797. During this time, he also recommended that the Department of the Navy be established separate from the Department of War, an arrangement that was adopted in 1798. So for all of these reasons, he, at least as much as John Paul Jones, really does deserve the title of Father of the Navy. Jones and Barry knew each other, though, right? Yes, they actually met on a number of occasions, and they had a mutual respect for one another. In fact, when Jones died, he bequeathed to Barry the sword he had been given when he was made a chevalier by King Louis XVI of France. Barry wore that sword during battles fought later in life. And there is an interesting arrangement at the chapel of the U.S. Naval Academy which speaks to the differences in these men. Yes, in the crypt of that chapel, the body of John Paul Jones is interred in an ornate marble sarcophagus surrounded by heavy marble pillars and balustrades, artifacts from the founding of the Navy, including the sword Jones had willed to bury, and other signs that here lies a great man. It is all very impressive. The tribute to Barry at the chapel is far more subtle, but perhaps more significant. High above that marbled mausoleum in the sanctuary of that magnificent chapel, John Barry's Bible rests upon the altar. He certainly gave his life to God and to his adopted country. Barry's last day of active service was in 1801, after which he retired to his home near Philadelphia. It was there that he died in 1803 at just 58 years old, from complications of asthma after a hard life lived at sea. He died with the gratitude and admiration of the nation he worked so hard to help live. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please be sure to give us a rating and a review. To learn more about today's topic, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com history. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or follow StarQuest on social media at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or on Twitter at sqpn. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.